You might not think of the Navy as being in the space business, yet the Naval Research Laboratory has a mission that spans pretty much every domain from underwater to space. In fact, there's a new director of the lab's Naval Center for Space Technology, Stephen Meyer. He joined me earlier in studio. Here's an excerpt. Our main goal is really to envision, rapidly develop, deploy, and operate space systems. And in addition to that, I have three ground stations where we carry out all of that on the operations side. So it truly is starting from basic concept and designs and orbitology, working through the build of a satellite, anything from the size of a thermos, which they are viewing as a CubeSat, all the way up to, say, 15,000 pounds. So we do everything from that range. We have full end-to-end testing facilities where you do things in space, such as shock, like when the you know, rocket takes off vibe, when it's you know rattling back and forth, thermal vacuum when you get into space, it's a vacuum, and these other ones called electromagnetic interference and coupling chambers when there's a lot of electrical components that are interacting with each other. So we have full end-to-end test capabilities that do that. So yeah, I I view us as really to provide the nation with new capabilities. We are really a first mover. We do one of a kind. We do high risk type of projects. You know, that's our job. And then once we're successful at that, we transition these programs over to the national space community, who then might put out a bunch of carbon copies of them. But we're the ones that burn the wrist down and do a lot of the hard work. It's actually quite hard to do something that's never been done before especially in space. And what is the Navy's use of these? Is it primarily navigation? Is it weather and oceanography? Is it surveilling the enemy or all of the above? Sure. It's several different areas I'll I'll run through. One is communications, because, of course, you need to be communicating globally with uh, other ships around the world and other services as well. So communication satellites is one. Uh, Number two would be weather. You know, we need to figure out where you're getting into a storm, it's hot, it's cold, whatever, all the things along those lines. So that's very important. But with the weather also, I'll say is space weather as well. If the sun has a solar flare or coronal mass ejection, those uh, electrons and protons and everything come down and they disrupt communication. So there's kind of two components to weather. ISR, which is intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, that's essentially what we use to identify anything from a canoe to a freighter. Who is it? Who are they? Friend or foe? Along those lines. So that's ISR. Long-range fires are something that's new. Uh, Most people might not have heard of that, but there's a lot of emphasis in these precision uh, missile attacks, which are about anywhere from 500 kilometers or greater where an adversary would launch it out. And 500 kilometers is about 300 miles or so. So anything 500 plus kilometers, long-range fires, space situational awareness. We need to understand where our adversaries are. If we want to do a mission or an operation, boy, if we have three or four adversarial satellites looking on us, it's going to be kind of an unsuccessful operation. And then last, I would say, is more uh, proximity missile warning, you know, offensive, defensive, ship to ship, which are much shorter scales. So that's how the Navy, you know, really utilizes space. We need it for our operations. It's critical for the service in order to be successful at their mission. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Meyer, director of the Naval Center for Space Technology, part of the Naval Research Laboratory. And how do you avoid duplication with all of these areas of operation, NOAA, 
You've got the Air Force. You've got mm-hmm. Space Force. You've got the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Yeah. Or does the Navy contribute data to that effort? Yes, I'd say we avoid duplication by focusing on some of the Navy's maritime needs, some of the things that I just mentioned. But the other services and agencies also leverage off of that just as much. You know, we leverage off of their satellites and they leverage off of ours. And quite honestly, it's there's a lot going on in space. And I'll just be honest, there is a certain amount of duplication that goes on. You just can't help it. You know, when you have many large federal agencies, NASA, the NRO, NGA, you know, everyone, NOAA, doing these types of satellites, that you do your best. It's a pretty large organization. I have roughly about a thousand people, government contractor, uh, and into a couple hundred millions in terms of budget. So we have our tentacles in a lot of different places. So we have a good sense, I would say, you know, where we're going to be avoiding duplication with other agencies. And I suppose you could argue that within the limitations of the particular sensors on a particular bird, that that redundancy is probably resiliency also and failover capability among the different components. That must come up also. Yes. I mean, we build in resiliency, I guess, through yeah, redundancy and proliferation of different sensors, other things along those lines, the ability to maneuver. All of that kind of, to me, is under the resiliency part. But yes, most of the components on a satellite are have some type of redundancy associated. If the first line fails, so to speak, you have a backup system in place. But what I mean is, yeah. if needed, the Air Force could perhaps provide connectivity for the Navy and vice versa if something happened to a particular asset in space? Sure. Now, I I understand your question a little more in depth. Yes, that is true that we do share information between all the different services. But here's what we're going to throw in the big kicker. So ultimately, commercial space is spending more money in the U.S. and globally than the U.S. government is in space. Just some statistics, you know, right now, this is FY20, I think that the global space economy, and that is every country's investment in aerospace industries, rocket launchers, and payloads for satellites is about $450 billion. And the prediction up to 2030 is $1 to $3 trillion of a global space economy. So it's a pretty large range, one to three, because they just don't know. It's, it's increasing exponentially. As I mentioned you know, in the past, uh, that you always will see something going on with space in the newspaper or the TV every day. In this country alone, venture capital has invested in $28.9 billion into venture capital space companies. And that's up from $5.8 billion in 2019. So we're talking like a 50 or 60% increase in venture capital investment. The other areas that have really reduced the entry barriers are, as everyone knows about SpaceX and putting other launch vehicles, they have made launch vehicles used to be a lot of, there's cost uh, relationships and be, they were roughly 20 years ago, about $10,000 per kilogram. And a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So just thinking rough numbers, it's going to be, you know, $5,000 a pound. Now we are down to about $100 per kilogram, which is about $50 per pound. Or two orders of magnitude less. Yes, two orders of magnitude. Huge drops. And those are like entry barriers to get into the system. The other part is uh, ground systems. There are 
Amazon has ground systems all over the area, OneWeb, others, um, and the U.S. services can leverage that as well. Uh, so there's a lot of that. And then also all of the satellites that are going up there. You know, as we've seen from, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to put a plug in for any company, but Starlink, Amazon, Kuiper are putting them up. The services can leverage those just as much as they can leverage in other services. They probably actually have even more opportunity to leverage commercial space. I mean, if you look at the war in Ukraine right now, a lot of the imagery, a whole lot of it is all coming from commercial satellites that were only once in the DOD world. Now commercial kind of owns that. So fair to say that the lab that you run then and the naval space enterprise in general, like the NGA, for example, is looking to leverage those commercial services where it makes sense and then concentrate your efforts on what might be uniquely military. Yes, that's exactly right. There are specific military operations that I believe, such as space uh, control or space situational awareness, are going to stay in the military regime. Because a lot of the other satellites that we I've mentioned are essentially communication satellites. They're sending down bits. You know, it's all about bits. It's all about video. It's all about, you know, getting you know, communication, spending all that to get underserved areas, connectivity to the rest of the world. There will be, for example, in those two areas that are going to be kind of just staying in the defense, but then for basic communications, for weather, for um, imagery, it's all going to be kind of moving towards commercial. A lot of the organizations I work with closely, uh, I mean, just I was at two conferences recently, the NRO and NASA, and their mantra is buy it first, build it second. So that's the kind of the direction that we're going in. Yeah, the old COTS preference is now yeah. moving into space. Yeah, I mean, five or six years ago, nobody was investing in space. They didn't think it would give you an ROI or net present value, whatever you want to use. So, yeah, we at NCST then are grabbing that and working with commercial companies, several of them, in order to leverage our capabilities and also understand their business models. Dr. Stephen Meyer is director of the Naval Center for Space Technology, part of the Naval Research Laboratory. There's much more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. Winter season is here, and Discount Tire wants you to stay safe on the road. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. Let's get you taken care of.